Have you ever felt the weight of sin, of past sin before? Sometimes the Lord, in order to awaken us and awaken our conscience, brings us a knowledge of our past sin and turns it before our eyes and allows us to feel its weightiness. God awakens our conscience to past sin. Now in this passage today, we are going to see something similar happening to the brothers of Joseph, whose con who have just sold their brother in slavery a few chapters ago in Egypt for money, and now their sin will find them out. So if you will read with me G Genesis chapter 42, I'll read the first few verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine in the land of Canaan was severe. Now Joseph was the governor over all the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. In this passage, Joseph's brothers go to Egypt to buy food and they come face to face with their past sins. The Lord has allowed their sins to catch up with them. Now, they're, go they're going to be reconciled with their brother by the mercy of their brother who is a foreshadowing and prototype of Christ. They're going to be reconciled with their brother. But before there's reconciliation, there is always repentance. And true repentance always comes with an awareness of your guilt before a holy and righteous God. So in this we see a, a, a prototype of the gospel where we have sold Christ and true repentance, true reconciliation rather, is affected by true repentance and guilt before a holy and righteous God. Just as humility comes before honor, which is what we saw last week, so guilt comes before reconciliation. Now we see in this passage that Joseph uh, is the governor. Remember last week he, he became the governor or the vice-regent of Egypt. So if you remember the, the, the movie Aladdin, in um, the Disney movie Aladdin, he's like Jafar. He's the vice-regent over all Egypt. And he is controlling the grain. And there is a horrible famine that has come upon the land. And everyone, everyone is flocking to Egypt to buy grain. Because they, through Joseph's wisdom, are the only nation that has stored up grain for this famine. I want you to notice two things, just in the first six verses. Number one, 
God's covenant to Abraham is beginning to take shape. It's the, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here you have all the nations of the earth flocking to a son of Abraham that they may live and not die. So you see this, this um, rudimentary fulfillment of the promise already in the life of Joseph. All the nations of the earth are flocking to Joseph. It is the case with Yahweh that he raises up a deliverer for his people. And he constantly does this in the history of redemption. And that culminates in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate deliverer from sin and death. Second thing I want you to notice is we see um, not only the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, but what about the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams? They, the brothers, what were Joseph's dreams? Remember, he dreamed in chapter 37 that um, they would bow to him. All his brothers would bow down to him. And the brothers, and even Jacob, say, what is this dream that you had? Are we going to come bow before you? And Joseph was sold into slavery. Then he was thrown in jail. And it's almost impossible to see how through those circumstances God was going to bring to effect these dreams that Joseph had. had. But... They come, buying grain, and in verse 6, And the brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So here I just want to repeat a theme that we've seen a number of times since we've been studying the Joseph narrative. And that's providence. God's providence in the midst, midst of evil. Um, you cannot discern how God's providence is working, as we've said many times. And you could not discern how the brothers' hatred of Joseph, how them selling Joseph into slavery, and how Joseph being wrongfully accused of sexual harassment would actually eventuate in his ascension to the right hand of the king. You could never discern that. But God's providence is indiscernible while it is acting. And just as we could not discern how Joseph would arise to the throne through these unfortunate circumstances, so you would never know how the Son of God being crucified could actually do any good for mankind. What good could come from the Son of God being crucified at the hands of those who rejected him? What good comes from that? We see in Acts a few passages that I've mentioned a few weeks ago that give us the answer. Acts 2.23, Peter says that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but you crucified him at the hands of lawless men. So it wasn't an accident that Jesus was crucified. It wasn't caught off guard. The Lord wasn't caught off guard. Rather, God repurposes evil for his own intentions. And that is the point of the Joseph narrative. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
Later in Acts 4, we read, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, get this, to do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. The evil had been repurposed for God's good. And according to his plan, Christ was crucified. So we learn, first of all, in the Joseph narrative, and throughout the entire narrative you see this, that you cannot fully discern God's providence as it's working. We are just called to trust his providence. And trust that he repurposes evil for good. And trust that all things for God's people are working together for good. For those who love the Lord. Now, it has been 20 years since Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. He was 17 at the time. It could, have, it could be actually be more than 20 years. It could be 20 to 27 years, somewhere around that area. And Joseph, after 20 years, you forget stuff. Things, things subside. And we see Joseph probably the pain of being sold into slavery, cut off from his family. That, probably, that pain has probably subsided a little bit. And actually in verse 51 of chapter 41, we see Joseph even telling saying this very thing. He says in 51, Joseph called the name of his firstborn son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all of my hardship in my father's house. So 20 years, time heals some wounds. And now Joseph has, has been around. He's ascended to the right hand of the king of Egypt. And now he's probably forgotten a lot. But now, unexpectedly, one regular work day, one average day, the brothers who sold him into slavery arrive at his doorstep. And so we read, Joseph saw his brothers as they bowed before him to the ground, and he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph is probably in uh, Egyptian makeup. He probably has an Egyptian beard, some kind of Egyptian headwear. And so he probably looks completely different than he did when he was a young man. But his brothers maybe a little older, maybe gray, but recognizable. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, No, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And Joseph said to them, No. It is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. 
But Joseph said to them, It is as I said, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go out from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let them bring your whole let them bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph's brothers, just as Joseph comes to con confrontation with his past, Joseph's brothers are beginning to be confronted with their past sins. The Lord has allowed their sins to find them out. Now it's quite amusing that Joseph's brothers characterize themselves as honest men in verse 11. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now perhaps they've never been spies, but it is very charitable to characterize these men as honest men. Let me tell you why. Reuben, the eldest, 30 years ago, slept with his father's concubine. And as we know, in ancient times, among the ancient tribes, that was a power play to assume ascendancy to be the chieftain of a tribe. We're not told exactly how that played out, and Joseph will be chastened for that in the blessings of Jacob later, but we know that this is a man that does not respect his father and even tries to gain ascendancy over the throne by sleeping with his father's concubine. Simon, or Simeon, and a few other brothers slaughtered all the males of a nearby village and carried off their treasures. After making them circumcise themselves, Judah is a guy that sleeps with prostitutes. And unbeknownst to him, it was his own daughter-in-law. And we see a few chapters earlier, just at the beginning of the Joseph narrative, that the brothers were conspiring to sell Joseph to Egypt for money. And then they lied to their father and staged his murder by putting blood on his coat and saying an animal had killed him. So these men are more like outlaws than the patriarchs of Israel. I mean, this is a, this is a wicked family at this point. You thought your family was bad. Now, so this is, so we are honest men. Let's put that into context. Um, also, too, we should appreciate the inner turmoil that Joseph is probably going through at this point. It's been 20 years, and that's a long time for feelings and emotions to sort of level out and subside. And I, I think certainly at this point, it has become a distant memory. His father's house being sold into slavery. Certainly there's pain there. But that was pressed down to the depths of him over time. But now, he's confronted with the men who threw him in a pit 
did not listen to his cries for mercy, bound his hands, sold him for money to slave traders in Egypt. These are the men who changed his entire life with a callous, even murderous hatred for their brother. And so Joseph probably has a mix of emotions at this point, seeing his brothers. I'm sure he was confused, angry, and I'm sure there's sadness there. And even this probably brought up within him all the emotions of yearning for home, remembering his father who cherished him and gave him a coat of many colors. So vengeance is in the hand of Joseph right now. He could have mercy on them or he could slaughter them. And I think, just to pull this thread, I think there are going to be times when vengeance is in your hand in a similar way. Perhaps somebody has wronged you in a very severe way and there are deep seeds of anger, confusion, resentment, bitterness. As disciples of Christ, we are told to repay no one evil for evil because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Also, as disciples of Christ, we are required to forgive. That's not an option. You're required to forgive. Do not pray, Lord, forgive me of my sins, if you are not willing to forgive others of their sins. Forgiveness is a two-way street, right? Forgive us, Lord, as we forgive those who have also sinned against us, Jesus says. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? What he was forgiven of by his master was equivalent to $6 billion debt. A $6 billion debt that's insurmountable, in other words. It's not even comprehensible, the debt. And that's the debt that you and I have been forgiven eternally before a holy and righteous God. Eternally paid for. Heaven awaits because your debt has been forgiven. Eternal life has been granted to you. Eternal life has been granted to you because your debts have been forgiven. Now, if we've been give, forgiven an eternal debt through Jesus Christ, as his disciples, we have no right to withhold forgiveness or harbor resentment or bitterness towards anyone. The unforgiving servant was forgiven of a $6 billion debt. The man that the unforgiving servant didn't forgive, he was guilty of what is equivalent to about a $12,000 debt. That's significant, right? It's very significant. $12,000 is nothing to scoff at. However, if you put it side by side with our debt, it becomes minuscule. And that is how Christ wants us to live. How, much, how, much, how many times should you forgive your brother? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. Part of being a disciple of Christ is to let all clamor, bitterness, wrath be not known among us. And in this church, especially in this church, 
I'm so glad we're studying holiness. We, talk, we, we read a book called The Pursuit of Holiness, excellent book by Jerry Bridges. But he's talking about matters of the heart. Holiness does require habits and discipline, but what we're after is a Christ-like heart of humility, love, lifting up another brotherhood. Ray has memorized a passage in Philippians. Count one another's more significant than yourself. More significant than yourself. So, brothers and sisters, in our church, may we never harbor harbor feelings of anger and bitterness. May we never hold forgiveness from a brother or sister. Right? Count one another as more significant than yourself. Know that Christ-likeness is actually done in relationship. And love of his patient kind, right? You can't love someone if there's not a difficult situation. That's the definition of love in First Corinthians, Corinthians 13. There's a difficult situation, and that's when love comes into action very often. So, vengeance is in the hands of Joseph, just like vengeance will sometimes be in our hands. The question now is, what does Joseph decide to do with his brothers? Show them forgiveness or seek revenge? Let's see. Perhaps we're not quite sure what the answer is in this chapter. Let's find out. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. God bless you. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Then bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. So Joseph has been very merciful to them at this point. Instead of making them all stay in Egypt and one brother go, fetch their younger brother and bring him back. Rather, he says, no one will stay. The rest of you go, carry grain, bring your younger brother back, and then I will give you the other brother. So, um... The question here, then, is going to be this. They have one brother in Egypt, first in, in custody in Egypt. The rest of them are given grain and are allowed to go back home. Here's the test. Are they still the kind of men who would abandon a brother in Egypt for money? Therein is the test. What kind of men have they become? Will they, through fear abandon their brother in Egypt just like they did to Joseph 20 years ago for money. Well, we read verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul. When he begged us and he did not, we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, and now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So they are now, they realize they are guilty. It's almost as if the Lord has allowed 
the sin of their past, specifically their sin against Joseph, to rise up to the forefront of their consciousness. And he holds it there. Like I said, you know the Lord is leading to your repentance when the Lord does this. When he brings up in the front of your consciousness your past sin, your past failure to follow him, and know that you're in a very good and gracious place when he does this because he is leading you to repentance and that's a blessed thing. So while it is called today and you're being led to repentance in that manner, do not harden your hearts. Repent and believe and follow after him as a beloved child. At this point, the brothers believe that there, com there has come a reckoning for his blood. You know, God does hear the cry of the innocent, their blood in their death. He hears the cry of the aborted children, and I believe there will come a reckoning for their blood. He heard the cry of Abel, right? When Cain murdered Abel, he says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So the Lord does hear the cry of blood. So they are fearful that God's providence has caught up with them. And now we see that Joseph has almost done something, has done something to intensify that feeling of guilt and fear. Let us read verse 23 so they say all this they're speaking to each other in Hebrew and so far now we learn that Joseph has been speaking to them through an interpreter so they said we've sinned against our brother the boy there comes a reckoning for his blood verse 23 they did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them then he turned away from them and wept and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace, to replace in his sack, or to place it in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. Then this part is done in secret. Um... And to replace every man's money. So Joseph, Lee, Joseph secretly replaces all their money. Again, the option is going to be, what kind of brothers have they become? Verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give the donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back in my sack. Here it is in the mouth of the sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, another, one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? If they are found for not having paid Pharaoh for the grain that they bought in Egypt, it is almost certain that they would be jailed or slaughtered. I mean, if I found this right outside the city of Egypt, 
I'd run into the woods and, and crawl back home. So they have a, so now there's, they're stricken with fear. Their brother Simeon is left in custody. The Lord has certainly brought their sin back upon them. They are now face to face with their guilt. Their sin has caught up with them. Two observations here. And as I've been saying, God will allow our sin to catch up with us. People don't really get away with things in life. It's just about when judgment comes. There is an awful story. As that's not a story, it's a reality. But someone we know, someone has been was being abused as a little child sexually by her stepfather for years in ways that you couldn't I couldn't even mention on a, in a pulpit. And this was secret for probably two decades, something like that. Hmm? And this man was a deacon at a church. Um, about two decades, this has been, maybe even more, uh, just has gone under the wayside. But recently, it has come out, and there has come a reckoning for that young woman, young woman's abuse. And now he has just been sentenced to 22 years in prison in our area. His sin has found them out. His sin has found him out. So like I said, the Lord is not mocked. The Lord is not mocked by such things. He, his providence will catch up with such sinners. And the reason that he allows this to happen, though, there is judgment, but there is also a restorative purpose in this. The reason he allows our sin to catch up with us is so that our guilt is awakened in our conscience and we are led to repentance. Now, you have an option. When your sin does find you out, and it will, when your sin does find you out, what will you do with that awakened conscience? You can grieve a worldly kind of grief, or you can grieve a godly kind of grief. The Apostle Paul writes the following to the Corinthians. He says, As it is, I rejoiced, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now it's one thing to grieve your sin and to be angry and sad that you've been found out. That's a worldly grief and it will bring your head down to shale. But a godly grief leads to repentance without regret. Repentance means to turn about face, turn around, change your mind, and now follow the Lord. And that is what the Lord does with your sin. He puts it before you 
to produce a godly grief that leads to repentance. And repentance leads to salvation without regret. So as I said before, when the Lord brings and awakens your conscience, fall on your knees, repent, believe, and do the works that He calls you to do in holiness and faith. So, again, I want to punch this point just because I like it a lot. Um, it's so interesting that Joseph has secretly given all his brothers their money back and sent them back to their homeland while their other brother remains in custody. So will they abandon their brother in Egypt for money again? It's the genius of Joseph's test. And he has replicated the very situation that happened to him 20 years ago. He has literally replicated an identical situation, an identical, identical choice for them. Abandon a brother in Egypt for money. So, now we read the rest of the narrative. They go home and they have to face their father, who was afraid to send his youngest son with them, but now has to find out that Simeon has been thrown in jail. It's very interesting how, what I'm about to read, how the brothers describe it. They kind of leave out some of the details. Then they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, and they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us, and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men, really, and we, never, we have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and a younger one is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are spies, not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. It's not just leave the youngest brother with you, it's he is actually imprisoned. And after they tell this to Jacob, certainly there is turmoil and fear, especially since they found money in one of their sacks, but we read on. And as they emptied their sacks, all of their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And when they had, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, "You have be you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin." All this has come against me. Then Reuben says something exceedingly stupid. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. That's going to make him feel better, right? <laughs> but he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him, 
on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow down to Sheol. Interesting, he characterizes um, Benjamin as the only one left. So uh, Jacob is clearly a man who plays favorites. I mean, he does have like 12 other sons, but um, he clearly plays favorites. So Jacob is demoralized. The sins of 20 years ago finally catch up with them. And here are the brothers, not telling their father, but believing among themselves that there has come a reckoning for Joseph's blood. We learn three things. Do we learn three things? I think we learn three things. We learn, first of all, from this passage that repentance precedes reconciliation, always, among God and his people. The good news of the gospel is that we have been reconciled to God. That is the ultimate gift of salvation, that you have been brought back into a favorable relationship with God. And when you're in a favorable relationship with God, you're connected to his life, and that life happens to be an eternal kind of life. But repentance is what precedes that reconciliation. And their sin, Joseph's brother's sin, has caught up with them, and there is an awakening of guilt upon their conscience. And so the same thing will happen to unbelievers today. If there is, a, if there is someone in this room right now who is not sure where they stand with Jesus Christ, when we say repent and believe, we are telling you that um, that guilt, that sin, that sorrow you feel is from the Lord. And it should lead you to repentance that leads to salvation. You don't have to repent. You get to repent and turn to a holy and righteous and loving God. But if one doesn't, then the wrath of God abides on them. And that is very serious. Paul says, I was just reading this in Bible study. When he looked at the law, he said, Then sin came alive and I died. Sin came alive and I died. Perhaps this is how the Lord works. He allows sin to come alive in your heart and mind. And then you die. Then you live to God. So, we learned that repentance always precedes reconciliation. Secondly, we see that God's providence does catch up with people. And he does hear the blood of the slain. There has come a reckoning for Joseph's blood. He has not forgotten Joseph. And as the saints are slaughtered, and the church is watered by the blood of of Christians throughout church history, the Lord has not forgotten their blood. And they cry out day and night, How long, O Lord? And so that is a very real reality that judgment is coming. There does come a reckoning for his blood. He heard the blood of Abel that cried out for vengeance. 
And the Lord brought that back on Cain's head. And here we are, a sinful people. And because of our sin, the Lord of glory was crucified. And his blood was spilled. Does the Lord hear the blood of Christ? And I know many of you know this, and what I'm about to say. But what does the blood of Christ call out for? Hebrews tells us that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I love that passage. The blood of Abel cried out for vengeance. What does the blood of Christ cry out for? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christ's word speaks a better, Christ's blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A much better word. And that's why we, we love talking about the blood of Christ. Because it cries out for your justification. It cries out for your forgiveness. It cries out for your salvation. And the Lord hears the blood of Christ. And if you repent and believe, as I trust every member of Church of the Vine has, if we repent and believe, justification is yours, forgiveness is yours. You are now a child of God. And you are forgiven because Christ calls out for your salvation. So you see the stitching of repentance and guilt and reconciliation even in the earliest chapters of the Holy Scriptures. You will come face to face with your sin. But that sin is always, that is always meant to lead you to repentance. Even if it's a... a um, Guilt of judgment. Always repent. We are always repenting. We don't just do it once. We are a people that constantly repents and believes. So repent and run to Christ's blood. Um, is Stefano there somewhere? He went out. Okay. Well, who else could play the piano? <laughs> All right. I'm going to pray if Stefan comes up after I'm done. Praise God. If he doesn't, then we'll close. All right, there he is. Let's give Stefan a round of applause for coming out. All right. Let me, um, let me uh, invite Stefan to lead us in one last song. Uh, before that, let me just say a, a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for the opportunity to repent and believe. Lord, we know that we are sinners, that we have defied your holy name, and we are rightfully under your wrath, but we run to Christ's blood, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, a better word than the blood of Joseph. He's the better Christ, a mediator of a new covenant, Lord. And so we run to him, clothed in his righteousness, and therefore, that's the only reason right now that I'm praying boldly and entering your throne. We thank you, Lord. And we praise your holy name. Amen. Amen. Stephen, if you would stand and sing one last song of worship today. You got that, brother?